Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 17. If you want to be opening your Bibles together, we're continuing our series of lessons looking chronologically at the life of Jesus Christ. And Luke 17 opens with Jesus saying something really, really important. He says, there will always be temptations to sin. There will always be temptations to sin. And I don't know about you, but that feels a little bit like an understatement. (laughs) In the world that we live in, it feels like these temptations to sin are everywhere around us. And they show no signs of slowing down anytime soon. And to make matters worse, oftentimes we are the ones responsible for putting these temptations in front of us willingly. It's not that somebody's bringing them to us. We're putting ourselves in that position willingly. And so we need to guard against all forms of sin. But Jesus follows up those words in verse 1 with a stern warning. Yes, temptations will always be there. But then he says, what sorrows await. What sorrows await the person who does the tempting. In other words, it's hard enough to conquer sin in your own life. And so we certainly don't need other people in our lives who are intentionally trying to trip us up, right? Uh, Certainly now, Jesus has in mind those scribes and those Pharisees and those religious leaders who from the beginning of his ministry have been trying to trip him up at every single term. Right? I mean, this, th- th- there's no doubt that's the way it was for him. But I think there's more to this than just that. Because the way the world is now, until God's final victory over the enemy, there are going to be times when people are going to find their faith tested by temptations. Temptations will come into every single life, and there's no way for any of us to avoid this, but that doesn't excuse anyone who is the one inflicting such temptations or testings on someone else. And I want to say something else here because I think it's important that we fully understand what's being said here in Luke chapter 17. And one of the ways I want to try to to, to teach this is to kind of look at another version of this same scripture. Some versions say, Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 17, 1, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Anybody have a version of the Bible that has that phraseology in it? Those that cause people to stumble, those things, they're they're bound to come. And so when I read from that version, my question is instantly, okay, what is he talking about? What is that thing that causes people to stumble? Uh, What is that thing that we see at the end of verse 2 that that, that's the same thing? And so i got to be honest, when I read that translation... I start thinking about my dog. (laughs) You say, what in the world, preacher? Well, listen, every year for Christmas, he gets one of these big old bones. And he's not a big dog, but he's a medium-sized dog. And he he starts eating on that bone and eating on that bone. And I'll tell you this, every time, it doesn't matter what night it is, we shut off all the lights, we're heading to bed, like a magnet to my foot, that bone is going to find its way. I'm going to step on it. It's going to hurt. It hurts a lot. And then 
then I'm going to almost fall as I'm trying to get to where I'm supposed to get. That's kind of what I think about when I think about things that cause people to stumble. Or maybe maybe another illustration. My kids aren't young anymore, but they still love, leave junk all over the house. But you remember when you were, were a kid, you had kids, young kids, they'd play with toys and they'd leave them. They'd go to another toy and they'd leave them on the ground. And you're like walking through a minefield. Am I going to get through this thing? Uh, because if you step on one, man, down goes Frazier, right? It's all over at that point. That's kind of what I think about when I read this section of Scripture, but I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. Those examples of causing someone to stumble, those are accidental, right? They're maybe caused because of unthinking or careless behavior, and the simple reason is because the word stumble is talking about something that trips you up, but it's not talking about something that makes you fall, right? A stumble is an unfortunate event in our minds, but it's unintended. That's important. It's unintended. Maybe it's a little bit embarrassing, but typically a stumble is not a tragedy. And so when we think about a stumbling block as an obstacle in our way that we fail to notice, it's going to cause some, some inconvenience, maybe a little bit of pain, but it's going to be limited. And I just want to tell you, that is not what Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 17.1. So as much as I love uh, that version of the Bible, I just don't think that really captures what Jesus is talking about. Because the word that Jesus uses is so much stronger than that. The word that Jesus uses here is the word scandalin. It's a word that corresponds with our English word for scandal. We are talking about the picture that's painted in this word. We're talking about baiting a trap. We're talking about a snare. Think about a, a mouse trap, right? You, you lure it in there with cheese only to crush the thing, right? In other words, it's designed to lure the victim in so that it can be destroyed. There's nothing unintentional about that. And this is what Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 17, verse 1. It's designed to entice. It's designed to entrap. It's designed to kill the prey. And Jesus says that anyone who purposely entices God's children of any age, this isn't just about young people, anyone who does that is going to wish they hadn't. But again, it's not just leading someone to a sin, a stumble. This is talking about causing someone to leave the faith altogether. This is the heart of what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus says it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin, to fall away from the faith. And Jesus finishes this by saying, you better watch out, guys. Watch yourself. I know watch yourself is the beginning of verse 3, but it actually should be the end of verse 2 because this is designated for his disciples who are listening to him teach. And so the question that I have is why? Why is, why is Jesus giving his disciples this warning? Because even in the Christian community, sin is still going to be among us. There's going to be opportunities for every single one of us to help other people grow in the faith. And guess what? There's going to be opportunities for every single one of us to destroy someone's faith too. So I want to talk about that just a little bit. How is it that we can build up somebody's faith, right? We don't want to be guilty of, of Luke 17, 1 and 2. So how do we build up someone's faith? And there are a variety of ways. This list that I'm going to give you is by no way, shape, form, or fashion exhaustive. But can I just remind you of some ways that you can help build people's up 
build people's faith up. And I think maybe the easiest thing is this thing called encouragement. What, what, what language are you using with your brothers and sisters? Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth. No, use the words that are going to build people up. And so if we want to make sure that we're not uh, causing people to fall away, but instead are, are, are helping them build up their faith, and let's be encouragers. I mean, that's really one of the main purposes of our coming together, according to a Hebrews chapter 10, is to encourage each other. But not only that, I think we can also invest in people. We can invest in people beyond Sunday morning. I love Sunday mornings. They're wonderful. They're the highlight of my week every week. But we got to be investing in people beyond just today in order to help them build up and grow their faith. And really what we're talking about is this thing called discipleship. Right? We're talking about discipleship walking with someone, maybe who's new in the faith, helping someone grow, helping them better understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then another way that I think we can help people grow and build up their faith is by modeling what love is. And part of what modeling love is, is having this willingness to forgive. If you're doing those things, I guarantee you, you're going to be helping people grow in their faith. But we can also destroy faith. You didn't know what power you have, but you actually do have quite a bit. We can actually be responsible for destroying someone's faith in a lot of ways too. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but let's just mention a couple that are, that are simple for us to see. And the reality is we can destroy somebody else's faith if we're being the wrong examples, right? By being bad examples to watching believers, new believers especially. What you do when you think nobody is watching matters, what you do matters. And I wonder how many people, how many new believers have been turned away from Jesus because they saw the behavior of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to take serious note of this. We, we could actually be someone who's tempting other ones to, to sin, to, to fall away from the Lord if we choose to not live out our faith on a consistent and regular basis. Not only that, uh, another one. Uh, sometimes we just believe things because we've always believed them. Can we be honest about that? And there's an unwillingness that oftentimes the people of God have to actually examine the Word of God. And if you're unwilling to examine the Word of God and somebody comes with a question that's really struggling with, maybe, maybe there's a doubt that's risen up in them, and you say, I don't know, it's just kind of all the way we've always done it, so we're just going to believe that. <laughs> we gotta, we got to trust God's Word. we got to be in God's Word. we got to be willing to point people to God's Word. But it's not just that. How about, how about this one? Oh, judgmental attitudes. And maybe the biggest is this last one that I'll look at, which is a lack of love and an unwillingness to forgive. We can be a part of the destroying of someone's faith if we're participating in those things. So let's talk about forgiveness because that's what Jesus talks about next. Look at verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus says some really important things here about forgiveness. First, he says if someone has hurt you, if someone has wronged you, then you need to go to that brother or sister. Don't go to others to tell them about how hurt you are. Go to the one who hurts you. Don't rally the troops to your cause, right? Go to your brother. Go to your sister. What is it about us that causes us to avoid this step? What is it about us where we would rather talk about someone that has hurt us rather than talking to someone that hurt us? Why would we rather embrace the hurt than forgive the person? It doesn't make any sense, but this is what we do. We rally the troops to our cause. We, 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 we get little factions that pop up all over the place because I want people on my side because I was wrong and I was hurt and I was this and I was that and God forbid that we actually just go to our brother and find out what actually happened. I was reminded of something important this week. And it's this. Humble leaders. Humble leaders are willing to go first. Are you a humble leader? How many times do we put contingencies on our actions? Right? I'll go, but only if they go first. I'll do the humble thing as long as they do it too. Am I speaking your language yet? That's not the way of Jesus. And that is why the way of Jesus is so revolutionary. Speaking of revolutionary, notice Jesus' call to forgive. Jesus basically says, even if the person who has wronged you doesn't really mean it when they say they are sorry, forgive them anyway. And I think back to my house, two older brothers, I was always mistreated. I never did anything wrong. <clears throat> and we would have those moments, right, where we're fighting as brothers and mom and dad would break us up and they'd say, now say you're sorry. Sorry. No, no way did I mean it, right? Not at all. I, I could care less. I just didn't want to get in more trouble or get my tail beat because they were older and bigger and meaner than I was. That's what I was scarred as a kid. Scar no, I'm kidding. But, but I didn't mean it, right? Well, Jesus is saying, even if they don't mean it, forgive them anyway. And it gets even more revolutionary. He says, even if they're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, he says, forgive them anyway. Wow, that's difficult, isn't it? Now, we might do that once. We might do that twice, but over and over and over again. What? And so the apostles listening to Jesus' teaching, say this, Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. <laughs> increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You see, it seems that 
These disciples have heard what Jesus has said about forgiveness and they recognize they are not where they need to be. And they think that in order to be able to forgive the way that God has just called them to forgive, that it's going to take a divine act of God to increase their faith. This is why they say, increase our faith. They think this is impossible. And so they say, increase our faith. It's a compelling request. I mean, think about what they are asking Think about uh, uh, this request and what it recognizes, right? This, this request recognizes, first, the presence of faith. This request recognizes the imperfection of their faith. And this request recognizes that they have a desire to grow in their faith, to have more faith, right? Now, there's no question that the Bible encourages us to be strong in the faith. Growing in our faith is a very, very important thing. We want to be able to trust more and more and more in the promises of God. Remember that Hebrews 11 makes it clear that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And think about this too. What does more faith look like? What, what, what does it mean to have our faith increase? Well, doesn't it mean that we love more? Doesn't it mean that we have more joy, more peace, more patience, more gentleness, more goodness, more righteousness, more holiness, more obedience? Doesn't more faith mean we look a little bit more like Jesus? Now, while all of that is true, Jesus' response in verse 6 to their request is interesting. I mean, think back to the times in Scripture when Jesus' disciples have asked for something else. They've said, teach us to pray, Lord. Right? They recognize, even though they've prayed their whole life, they recognize that the way they're praying and the way Jesus is praying, man, those are two completely different things. And so they say, help us, teach us, right? And what does Jesus do? He says, okay, let me tell you about prayer. Here's a model prayer for you. Take a look at this. Think about that. How does this look? But Jesus doesn't do any of that here, does he? He doesn't say to them, okay, guys, here's how uh, you can grow in your faith. Here's the thing you need to do in order to have more. He doesn't do that. There is no instruction that follows their request. In fact, I want to suggest to you that what Jesus says to them is a bit of a soft rebuke. He's basically saying, guys, you don't need more faith. What you need is a greater understanding of the one you have faith in. This is what he's saying to them. You don't need more faith. You need to know who I am. He's not, he's saying don't wait around for an increased measure of faith before you forgive because just a small amount of genuine faith can accomplish what is humanly impossible. Now, Jesus isn't downplaying the importance of having faith. Jesus isn't downplaying the importance of growing in our faith. Instead, he's emphasizing the importance of exercising the faith we already have. He's stressing the need for us to be obedient. So Jesus' point is it's not a matter of how much faith you have, but rather, do you have faith in the living God? Because if you have faith in the living God, it can accomplish great things, not because of the size of your faith, but because of the power and the ability of your God. This is what he's saying to us. He will do mighty things through the person who trusts in him, even if their faith is seemingly small and weak. Do you recognize how amazing our God is? 
I mean, he is, he is absolutely a mind-blowing God. And he's so much bigger than you can even think or imagine. Uh, that, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He can even do beyond what you can even dream about. He says God can do that and then some. I love what Francis Chan said. Let me put this on the screen. I want you to see this. I love this. Here's what he said. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God who can't be exaggerated? Yes. He can't be exaggerated. There's nothing that you can say about God where we can say, well, that might be just a little too much. No. He's a great big God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. That fight, that fight that broke out between you and your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ, that hurt feeling that right now you know about and you're holding on to and you're not letting go of, that thing, whatever it is, you see, you don't need more faith to give it up. You just need to remember how big your God is and trust him more than your own feelings. That marital relationship, that marital problem you're having, it's not bigger than God's ability to help you. You don't need more faith in order to make this thing right. You need more understanding of your big God and his ability to do what seems impossible like forgiving each other. That financial problem is not bigger than God's ability to help you. You don't need more faith. You need more understanding of this gigantic God who holds the whole world in his hands, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a metaphor for saying he owns the cattle on every hill everywhere. It's all his. It's all his. All of it. Every single aspect of it. You don't need more faith in your ability to do something. You need more faith in his ability to do something. Whatever your issue is, it is not bigger than God's ability to deliver. It's not about growing your faith, as important as that is. It's about growing in your understanding of this mighty God we serve. So can we take that idea of a big God and apply it to this concept of forgiveness for a second? Can we use that, that example in verse 4? Let's suppose that someone has wronged you and has asked for your forgiveness. That's rare because normally we do what we do. We, we gather our little camps and we don't actually talk to each other. But let's just assume that that actually happened. Someone wronged you and they came to you and asked for your forgiveness, but you're deeply hurt. And you are struggling with obeying God by granting forgiveness. How much faith do you need to forgive the other person? Isn't isn't the answer as much faith as it takes to believe that God has forgiven you? Isn't that the answer? So maybe your prayer needs to sound something like this. Lord, I'm, I'm having difficulty obeying you by forgiving my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife, my coworker, my neighbor, my kid, my parents. I'm having difficulty obeying you by forgiving. But I know that I've trusted in you to forgive my sins. And I know that you did it not because of me or my great faith, but because you are a faithful God who keeps his promises. 
And I glorify you for your great mercy toward me. And I ask you now to be glorified through me by enabling me to forgive this person who has wronged me. Uproot this bitterness from my heart and plant it in the sea. Isn't that a good prayer? You see, by getting your eyes off of yourself and onto God and his great mercy and his great faithfulness, you glorify him. And even if your faith is very, very small, as small as a mustard seed, God can uproot your bitterness and he can bury it forever. And guess what? When that happens, who gets the glory? You? (laughs) No. He does. Because he accomplished through you what you could never accomplish yourself. This is an interesting illustration, isn't it? This mulberry tree being thrown in the sea. It's really a graphic illustration. I don't think he's actually suggesting that we do this. I think it's an illustration that says even small faith can do what is humanly impossible because our faith isn't in ourselves. It's in none other than Almighty God who works through our faith. So, let me say it this way, and we'll move on. Everyone who has truly believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. If that's you today, if you have believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you today have enough faith to obey even the most difficult commands of Scripture because the issue isn't your great faith. The issue is your great God. Look to Him. And he will be glorified as he works with his mighty power through your weakness and through your small faith. Verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come into the field. Now this is an interesting section of scripture by the way. Will any of them come when they come in from the field say come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Interesting scripture. Let's unpack this a little bit as we wrap this up today. Let me try to do it this way. What do you want for your life? I mean, really, what, what, what do you want from your life? What are you living for? If you could really have the good life, what would that look like? You ever dreamed about that? Here's what the good life is to me. If you were to say, if I only had blank, then my life would be blank, how would you fill in those blanks? And I'm just wondering, I just have a question for you this morning as we think about Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Here's my question. Could it be that even though you are a child of God and I am a child of God, could it be that even though we are children of God, that we still think of our lives as belonging to us? And you see, when you think of your life this way, then following Jesus, ministry, if you want to call it that, is about stepping out of your life, giving God a little bit of your time, a little bit of your energy, a little bit of your money, and then 
I step back into my life. If that's what you're thinking, that's a bit of a problem. That's a big problem. If following Jesus is something separate from your real life, from your daily life, that's a problem. You see, behind this view of following Jesus, which I'm just going to call ministry, behind this view of ministry is the thought that your life still belongs to you and you give moments of your life to the Lord for his work. And I want to suggest to you that that view of following Jesus, that view of ministry, is absolutely not what we see in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus and the New Testament authors make it abundantly clear that our lives do not belong to us anymore if we have become followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says it really, really simply and really, really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. You remember what he says? You are not your own. Anything, anything difficult about that? Any nuances there that we need to look at the Greek to figure out? You are not your own. Why? Why am I not my own? Because you were bought with a price. And you begin to get close to what God has designed for your life to be as one of his children, when you understand that nothing that makes up you, nothing that makes up your life belongs to you. You and everything that you are, everything that makes up you, were bought with a price. And so you today are owned by the one who paid the price for you. And see, oftentimes we want the blessings that come with being owned by God, but we don't really want to be owned by anything. I want the benefits of being in the kingdom of Jesus. I want the forgiveness. I want the eternal life. I want the relationships. I want all of those things. But being owned by someone? Whoa, now, preacher. But you can't have one without the other. The New Testament makes clear that God has called all of his children not to be mere recipients of the kingdom not to be recipients of the kingdom work of grace. No, he's called us to be instruments of that grace as well, has he not? Every one of God's children has been given a call to ministry, a call to following Jesus, and everyone must think of himself or herself in that way. So the New Testament does not teach a separation between life and ministry. Every, every, every aspect, every dimension of your life is a forum for ministry. Your marriage is a ministry. Friendships, that's a ministry. Parenting, that's a ministry. It's a really big ministry. Being a neighbor, that's ministry. The workplace may be your greatest place of ministry. Your school is a place of ministry. You and I have been called by our Savior to represent Him who has graciously given us everything that we need to live this out. And when we live it out, when every aspect of our life, right, when we live it out in every possible way, we're just, 
We're just simply doing what we should be doing because of what Jesus has done for us. And when I live it out in every aspect of my life, when ministry is not something I step into and then step out of when the service is over, I don't somehow gain God's grace. I don't somehow gain uh, God owing me something, right? And sometimes we think, well, that person, he has stepped out of his life and in the ministry, he spends a lot of time there, more time than me. And so certainly God's going to hear his prayers. Certainly God's going to do this. Certainly God's going to do that. And I just want to suggest to you that, that, that stepping in and stepping out, that's not New Testament. <laughs> but not only that, it's not how it works. If you give your body to be burned, if you give your body as a martyr, as you, if you give all the money that you have, you're simply doing what you should be doing based on what God's already done for us. And so if you're giving so, so that you can get more, that's a problem. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. If you're forgiving, I forgave him, so God, you know, that's, that's what I'm, he's going to forgive me even more. Well, it's true that you can't be forgiven if you won't forgive, but that's not the point, is it? Ministry, following Jesus, it's all of us. It's every piece of us. It's every part of us. So stop viewing following Jesus as a, a step out of my life into that, and then I can step out of that anytime I want. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. And Jesus' call is, I bought you with a price. Now go live. And everything that you do as you live, point it back to me. The one who saved you when you didn't deserve it. We follow a radical Savior. I mean, what he calls us to couldn't be more profound. It couldn't be more countercultural. It is absolutely amazing, this God that we serve. That's all I got. It's all yours. Take it and do with it what you will this beginning of the holiday season. I'm glad that you're here. I, I pray that uh, his word will find root in your heart. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit is going to make lessons appear to you that I had no idea were going to happen up here. Right? I mean, that's how God works, isn't it? I was at a conference not too long ago, and, and the preacher said that. You know, we've got to trust as preachers. We've got to trust the Holy Spirit to do his work on the lives of our people. You know, I come up here, and I have an idea with where I want the lesson to go, but sometimes it's going to go in directions I never intended. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's going to reveal something to you that I had no clue was going to be revealed, and I give all glory to him for that. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama... We would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.